Where this week we will be discussing and spoiling the killer inside me. If you have not seen it, you might want to steer clear because、uh, we're going to be talking as if,、uh, with the assumption that maybe you have seen it.、Uh, I am joined by <laughs> Christian Muru Murau Muraus Murausti Murausti Murausti. I think that's right. Did I get that right? Uh. uh. I'm not going to say anything. They haven't given me any lines. I also have with me Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand, this is, a, this is a tough one. What would be your tagline for The Killer Inside Me? Or at least The Killer Inside Me podcast that we're going to do this week?、Uh, life is a bucket of shit with a barbed wire handle. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. Is that Jim Thompson or is that Kelly Wand? It's Jim Thompson. I can't write anything that good. I wish you would have sang that. <laughs> I did. That's me singing. <laughs> me talking is much slower and less melodic. Like that.、So, uh, Kelly Wand, can you give us a killer inside me synopsis?、Uh, I, I'm not sure I would envy anyone having to do this, but why don't you break down what exactly happens in this movie? Oh, you mean a killer inside myopsis? Sure. Yeah, let's go with that name.、Uh, I consider this one short and uninspired. Okay. The, the synopsis, not the、uh, movie. Do the synopsis and then tell us why you did a short and uninspired. Why did this? Well, give us the synopsis and then we'll talk about why it's short and uninspired. Maybe you'll think it's long and inspired. Could be. That's right. Leave that to me, Kelly Wand. I'll be the judge not, of that. Not Mistowski. Okay, I, so here it goes. All right. Are you ready? <laughs> yep. Okay,、uh, so Casey Affleck is this sheriff that all the women in town are drawn to because he likes to beat the shit out of them and kill them. So, this rich guy named Ned Beatty hires him to pay off a whore named Jessica Alba and then kill her and his son and steal the money and then hang a kid in prison. But a hobo whose hand he burned followed him and saw him murder all these people. So, the hobo decides to try and blackmail him, even though everyone else who tries to blackmail him dies. And、uh, a union organizer whispers stuff to him in a car. And fills it with smoke, but no one can hear what he's saying, so nothing happens. And it turns out that、uh, all the cops and newspapers lied to Casey Affleck about Alba being dead weeks ago, and everyone's just been messing with him for weeks so he could kill more people, and that his boss could shoot himself. But they fool him by letting him pour gasoline all over his house and him, and coming in and lowering their guns while he has a knife in his hand. And they send Alba in limping to tell him she loves him. And then they take him into custody. It works out. The end? Yeah. <laughs> they take him into custody? <laughs> oh, I fell asleep.、Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't know. Depends on how you interpret that ending. That's a good point. That's a good point. Because when、yeah. Sybil Shepard gets in the back of his office. Right, right. That means he's dead. He's been dead this whole time. If you see Sybil Shepard getting into your car, you're dead. Did you really fall asleep in this movie, Kelly Wand? No, I didn't. All right. All right. What did you take me for? A sleeper. Uh, uh, 
Okay. Now, you are our resident Jim Thompson fan in that I think you're the only one here who's actually read a Jim Thompson novel. This really? is based on, uh, I don't think I've read Jim Thompson. Dingus, have you read Jim Thompson? You probably weren't allowed to as a child, were you? No, I was not. He's not quoted in the Bible. So I'm not <laughs> and I, I don't think I have either. I, I know Jim Thompson mainly from uh, adaptations of his stuff uh, of varying degrees of success and faithfulness. Um, but oh, as, as you know, that. I know exactly. Well, I, I, I have to take it on faith what I'm told. Uh, uh, so as someone who's actually read Jim Thompson, and I, I understand, too, this is this his most... Not most popular, but is this considered his best novel? Like, is that fair to say, or, or could you even address that? I think it's considered his Pickwick Papers. It's his Evergreen. Um, it was his first splash novel, and I've only read this novel and Pop 1280, which is also exactly the same. It's like a small-town serial killer sheriff guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I get them mixed up in my head, and I forget which one's which. And I get the twists mixed up, because there's a different twist. Now, how, how did you... Go ahead, sorry. ...is that she's alive, which is the twist I remember. I don't remember him setting fire to everything at the end of the novel. I think he shoots a bunch of people and goes nuts, and then they just shoot him. But maybe I'm misremembering it. Or that's the other one. Now, do, you like, uh, do you like having me as an expert yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, more to the point, uh, how did you feel this, like, compared to things like... Uh, I guess Grifter's Hot Spot, uh, After Dark, Sweet Lovely, or whatever that is. Uh, how, how does this fit into the the, the, the sort of uh, ranks of Jim Thompson adaptations? The Hot Spot's Jim Thompson? Maybe not. Is it not Jim Thompson? I, you know what? You're the expert here. I'm going to have to turn that uh, over to you. Kelly Wan, is the Hot Spot Jim Thompson? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, never mind then. I don't think so get, either. Because you get it's... turned on during the hot spot, while as in Killer Inside Me, there's you never get turned on in a Jim Thompson adaptation. That means you're it's not a Jim Thompson adaptation. All right. If you're getting horny. So if you have Jennifer Connelly naked in your movie, that probably... Well, but Aronofsky had Connelly naked. And that... And that was not Jim Thompson, though. Right? That was Hugh Selby Jr. So. I was saying, you can ruin anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, more so. So, how did this? How did you feel this worked as a Jim Thompson adaptation? Is what I'm sort of getting at here. Um, it seemed more. It was different. I liked it for different reasons. I liked the movie, actually. Um, but I his writing is usually very compact and quick, like like Chandler, whom I believe you have read. Mm-hmm. And um, when you read stuff like that, you can go back and and find and and study it. But then when you see it in a movie, you have to just sort of like keep track of it all. So um, like, there's a lot to absorb at the beginning of Killer Inside Me. You have to automatically figure out his relationship with both the Conways and his boss. That's and that's what's weird about the movie that didn't seem weird about the book is in the book. It makes more sense that he's been like this all his life and not gotten caught. But in the movie, he just starts off at full steam. And it seems weird that... Because he doesn't change at all through the movie. He seems like the same dude. And you can't tell at what point... Like, did they already know he was a killer all along for decades in this town or not? Well, I don't. Let's let's we'll talk about that. It's uh, clear to me. The one of the things that I one of the reasons I was asking about that, Kelly Wand, is I, I am really familiar with the director and the writer of the script. Wonderful. I'm not familiar with with Jim Thompson. 
Uh, and I, I loved this movie. I was the one that sort of uh, unilaterally declared we were going to be talking about it this week. This is the week it's out on DVD. Uh, and one of the things that I'm least familiar with is, is, you know, how much does it owe to what Jim Thompson has written versus John Curran's script and Michael Winterbottom's uh, direction and, and certainly Casey Affleck's performance. I, I see this movie as having this sort of triumvirate of what any great movie needs, and that's namely uh, an incredible performance script and direction that all work well with each other. And, and so as far as my perspective, I just want to know, I was curious, like, where Jim Thompson's contribution comes in. You know, how much of what makes this movie great in my eyes, uh, and as much as you liked it, how much of this belongs and in, in, should be credited to Jim Thompson? I think it's uh, extremely faithful, but different. Okay. That the book is is all first person, and so you're in his head the whole time, mm-hmm. and it's kind of it's more American psychoy. There's a little lot more diversions, and you see he's an unreliable narrator. While as in the movie, you kind of, he seems fairly reliable in the movie. You, what you're being what you're being shown at any given time is what's really happening. Okay. I'm not sure I'd agree with that, but uh, but uh, okay. Uh, uh, or does that? Where uh, uh, we'll talk about that in a, in a bit. I, I uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to whether or not he's a reliable narrator. But it's I think a different that's, effect. That's an important that's and fascinating point. question, I think. And when people, I read reviews of the movie, and it seemed like everyone got really hung up on the brutal beatings of the women. Like it's different to read it than it is to see it, and so it kind of made people hate the movie or miss miss the point of it. Like, that's what the movie's about. That's what the book's about. But it's different to read it, I guess. And people can handle it. I guess because they were expecting Al, but the, I don't know. Not that. <laughs> well, you, you've mentioned some of those beatings. I want to then throw it over to Dingus real quick, because he's the one amongst the three of us who has the, the tenderest sensibilities and right. who's most he likely... He has a heart. He's a human being. He, he, gets, he closes his eyes during scary movies. He shrieks like a little girl. It, you know, he's the, the good fella on he's the really nice guy of the podcast so dingus as the really nice guy as the lightweight how do you deal with how do you react to a movie that that is so sickeningly brutal at times like how did that what did that do for you dingus what did the brutality do for me well you were watching i mean no what what did that do were you able to enjoy a movie that was that brutal i mean we'll we'll talk a minute about the the scene specifically the the beating of jessica alba that is just heart wrenchingly brutal i felt i mean that's just sickening in many uh senses of the word uh so dingus was this movie too much for you is is what i'm asking oh absolutely not um because i love this i love this genre so much and um you know I, i'm really I, i'm happy that you sort of got uh, got the jim thompson stuff out of the way early because i don't know the source material at all either and and I got the sense from watching this that the the folks who were making this uh, had a real affection for it, but just sort of said, "Let's make what we're going to make." And it and it felt like um, not a I don't know not a I don't know if I want to use the word deconstruction of noir so much as to say it's a it just in some ways it reminded me uh, what what Michael Winterbottom was doing with this not uh, with with noir what Clint Eastwood was doing with Westerns in Unforgiven. And, um, and so the beating for me, while I understand what you're saying about being brutal, it wasn't um, gratuitously uh, gory. And, and it, it felt so physical and intimate. 
and the the intimacy of the beatings. I mean, I, I, I suppose intimacy when you're talking about beatings is maybe the maybe a, a disgusting word to use. But it. But it I would say so certainly appropriate in this instance. I mean, that's that's a great word to hit on, Dingus. I, I think. It, it felt so intimate to me that that. I, di- I didn't get sort of a feeling of shuddering or looking away from it because uh, because of the way he deals with it and the way he feels toward his victims. And it's, it's such an odd exchange of communication and love and intimacy that uh, that. It, it almost makes you tremble, but it doesn't it didn't make me look away or, or offend my sensibilities or anything like oh. that. Yeah, me neither. Just for the record. I just noticed. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the noir aspect, uh, Dingus, because one of the things that it puts me in mind of is nowadays when we think of noir, we think of oftentimes quaint but sexy period pieces, uh, you know, where people are wearing hats and smoking cigarettes and they're really cool. And, yeah, there's going to be a murder, but that could be sort of cool and sexy. Uh and, and I imagine, you, you know, noir, the word literally means black. It doesn't, it doesn't mean dark. It doesn't mean uh, racist. <laughs> but it, it, this, this to me is, is what it must have been like at one point to see noir, you know, when it was something bold and new and, and shocking. I mean, this, to me, was an instance of really, you know, the, the brutality to me was shocking. That, that entire sequence, even though you see it coming, the way it unfolds is just so sickening. And, and, and just, I had a visceral reaction to it. Uh, and this must have been what it was like back in, you know, 19, blah, 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 when people first saw Double Indemnity. You know, we watch Double Indemnity now, and, and it's the guy from Father Knows Best, and oh, the girls. They beat showing. their wives more. I think it was, the 50s was a violent decade. And and this really does, not just violent, but uh, I, I don't know about the decade, but this really does situate it, though. Part of the, the, the tension, I think, in noir is, is this civility and, and brutality. And, and the, the community we're introduced to early on in Killer Inside Me, all of these, these codes of gentlemanly conduct. Uh, Casey Affleck, in one of the early voiceovers, has this great line about here, you're either a man and a gentleman or you're nothing at all. Uh, so, so that juxtaposition. And, and God help you if you aren't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and and people taking real offense when you get called the son of a bitch. You know, talking about somebody's mother. Uh, just the the irony of that code of living. Um, so, so it it gets to that juxtaposition of civility and brutality that I think we was probably really shocking back in the day in noir. Uh, so, Dingus, you, you compare it to Unforgiven, and in a way, Unforgiven just really was a Western reinvented for a contemporary audience. I felt like this was noir sort of reinvented for, for a contemporary audience. Uh, and uh, so I, I'm glad you touched on that. Um, let's, Kelly Wan, you mentioned that early on there's a, a lot of intricacies uh, about... But they're all, they're all kind of pointless. I mean, they okay. wind up not mattering so much. Okay, now you but say he's that. doing it for those reasons. I mean, he doesn't. He kills. The reasons he kills matter in the movie, right? Like, right. You, like you get the sense he wasn't going to kill Hudson, except that he got blackmailed by a bum. Mm-hmm. So it's like he's thinking that far ahead, but he still gets caught by bums. Well, let me ask you guys a couple of things that I'm curious if you caught that I did not catch the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
did did you do you know why he is doing all of this? The whole blackmail scheme was that clear to you guys, or was that at all confusing? Because I, I do feel, by the way, that it's a very intricate movie. Kelly Wan, you say things don't matter, but I disagree strongly. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's an intricate, very in depth look at a guy's psychology. Uh, that that's easy to I don't want to say miss, but it's easy to just sort of see the plot of it and not understand some of the motivation and, and backstory going on. I guess I meant they don't matter just so is for your enjoyment of the movie. Well, they matter. I, see, well, I, I think it does. The for for me, what makes the movie awesome is this guy's psychology and how much you end up finding out about it over the course of the movie. And a lot of that are little throwaway things early on that you might not understand the importance of. For instance. His conversation with Elias Codius, uh, who's the guy who plays the, the union uh, fella, um, about his foster brother. Uh, so did, were you guys pretty clear on what happened with his foster brother and why he's doing what he's doing? Yeah, this is, a, this is about revenge. Right, exactly. And uh, cover. Now, Kelly, want to explain the cover, because that's something that I missed the first time I saw the movie. What is The brother, called? because the brother was accused of the things that he actually did. Exactly. Yeah. He did the same thing. The brother was a fall guy, just like uh, Johnny Pompas, the right. guy in the jail cell. So, I did, I did, you know what? When I meant it didn't matter. The fact that I read the book made me remember like what was going to be important in the movie. So, okay. I brought different baggage to the movie than you did. You were trying to figure out based on, like, oh, yeah, I remember he's doing this guy. But so, so right there, though, Kelly Wand, I mean, there's, there's a fundamental disconnect between what this man is doing and why he's doing it and the roots for why he's doing it. He is getting revenge on his brother being killed even after he had already let his brother take the fall for something he did. Uh, you know, that, that's to me fascinating. He molested a little girl, a little five-year-old girl. His older brother took the fall and got sent away for it, came back many years later, and he believes was murdered for molesting the girl. When, and so he goes to avenge his brother when he's the guy that should have been murdered in the first place, when he did what his brother had been accused of doing. Uh, that, that to me is fascinating there, mm-hmm. is that to, in his mind, the moral lapse is not, you know, revenge for molesting a, a girl or the, the murder of his brother. I mean, the moral lapse begins with him. This, this chain of events that ends in him murdering Jessica Alba and uh, the, the Conway son, he set in motion, and he does not take any responsibility or even acknowledge that. But you, you see that later when he when he's standing over the body of Amy in front of the bum. I mean, he blames the bum for him having to kill him. Yeah. And, and, and similar, yeah, exactly. Uh, but and, why couldn't he kill the bum without killing her? It just seems like he's also, he, he finds targets of opportunity, too, and there's money at stake. Well, the, this movie is also about unlocking who he is and, and about the title of the movie, and he needs to do that. I mean, it talks about that. He talks about that. I'm sorry to sort of jump the gun on this, but he talks about, I know, I know I need to kill her and I would do other things. I'd be reading a book. I'd be reading the paper and then it would come to me and I would question it, but I realized I had to do it. I mean, this is something he has to do and, and it's being unlocked. He's sort of learning who he is. It's not him doing it. It's a killer inside him doing it. And you say he doesn't change Kelly Wand, but I mean, it really is a kind of a downward spiral. Uh, you get the sense, so here's this guy who has not even, who hasn't, who molested a child many years ago. And for some reason, too, this is fascinating to me. Why does this character become uh, a sheriff, a policeman? 
Uh, that, that right there, I think, is a huge clue to, to what he's doing and, and how sort of self-deluded he is about what he is and what he's, you know, what what function he serves in, in society or, or whatever. Uh, the fact that this guy at some point decides to be a sheriff, I think, is, is a huge clue in, into what's going on with him. Uh, well, he's a sheriff before this movie starts. You're saying he changes during the movie? Well, he's a killer. Well, not a killer, but at least a rapist before... Right. Before the movie starts, I mean, there there is a killer inside him already that he's locked down, and I think becoming a sheriff is probably a part of that. Yeah, right, it's this sense of like, it's this sense of self denial, like denying the these these part, like sort of trying to deny and lock down these things that he has that, that he even at one point attributes to just this need to needle people. You know, when he talks about that, that's probably one of the, the closest pieces of self-awareness. I mean, it, it seems to go, it obviously goes so much further than that. Uh, but I, I think he, he sees himself as, as a, I think, a good guy. I mean, it, he's trying to sort of deny this aspect of himself. Um, so I'm sorry, you started to ask something, Kelly Wand. Do you think he killed anyone before the movie starts? Uh, I don't Or was see... Alba his first? Yeah, I don't see that it would serve any like dramatic purpose to say he has uh i doubt it like that's not i didn't feel that the movie thought he had i'm gonna say definitely i don't think so okay just get because i think that this there's no movie, indication that he did but he's he seems to know what he's doing that's it's not just point. that it's that this movie seems to be about this particular point in time and it, and it seems to be about this awakening of who he is or, or this other part inside of him, this other part on the fence. He, I mean, he talks about straddling a fence. And, and this seems to be the moment where this part gets to act. And it seems very specific here. So, so uh, you know, maybe in the book or, or in another, another interpretation, there are a bunch of bodies buried in the basement, but I don't believe it. I believe this is the first time and this is awakened in him at this time. And we're we're... We're privy to this, and he's telling us. That, I mean, he's telling us this story because this is what's happening to him at this time. Hmm. He also uh, doesn't seem like like a lot of this seems to go back to as the audience. I think we're privy to this. I don't think this is necessarily self awareness on his part, but as the audience, we're privy to his memories of. I, I assume that was his mother, uh, huh. who. Uh, is that is that wrong? Do you think? Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, she seemed so, awful young, though. She seemed like a sister to me, but I guess she could be his mother. Well, so there's a couple of yeah. I think it's supposed to be his mom for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which is uh, he he says something uh, to Elias Codius about his mother died when he was a baby. Which, if we look at the flashbacks, the, he's it's not a baby in the scene where where the woman says, "Look what your daddy did to me. You can do it too. I like it when you hurt me." Right. I mean, uh, so I, I get the sense that isn't a sister. Uh, and and when he finds the pictures in the Bible, um, you know, I don't just think that that was a, a the father's girlfriend or, or something. Uh, so so. so the, so is this his stepmother or foster mother? Well, no. I think that the chronology works that, that this was his mother who died in the, the flu epidemic, which would have been 1918 and 1920. Uh, that's what he tells Elias Codius is that uh, she died in the flu epidemic, and then they, they adopt Mike Dean. Um, so I think just when he says she died when I was a baby, he's thinking of himself as whatever, five or six years old, or however that kid is in, in the first scene. Um, 
Uh, I forgot where I was going with that. So, so anyway, yeah. So it, that seems to be an, an early bit of insight into what makes him uh, the, the the way he is. Uh, you know, we have in this movie uh, character development during the sex scenes, which is something you don't generally see in a movie. Right. Uh, and I think that's huge. And and I think that what what this ends up tying to in the later flashback when we find out that his mother told him to hit her is that this a lot of this goes back to her. And there's an irony with this in this community where if you say something bad about a guy's mother, you know, that's the line you don't cross. When Jessica Alba says, you know, she calls him a, a Boy Scout with a badge, copper, all that stuff, he doesn't care about that. But when she calls him a son of a bitch, he says, you know, don't you say that to me, ma'am. Uh, and later on, when uh, Simon Baker says something about son of a bitch, even the guy with the hair lip, Jeff, says, now don't, don't go there. You know, don't talk about someone's mother. Uh, I love the irony that here, you know, mothers are pure and you can't say bad things about them. But also here, you know, it seems like the roots to this go back to his mother, to his childhood, and some kind of screwed up things that she, she seems to have exposed him to. Um, well, I think later... Okay. Go ahead, Kelly. No, no, you go. Mine's dumb and long. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, later you hear him say um, that she looked like her. You know, he's talking about Amy. You think. So I'm wondering who her is as far as you guys are concerned. Well, when he's in the asylum, by the way, and imagines, and this this totally blows away this idea of a reliable narrator, when he's in the asylum and he sees a slideshow, I'm pretty sure, I don't think any of those was Kate Hudson. I think they were all the actress playing his mother, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. I think there, I think there, actually, I think there might have been some images of, of Kate Hudson, but I think okay. they were back and forth with his mother because... He says it went too fast to see her. And the first time I really went through that, when he's talking about she looked like her, it's in the middle of one of these sex scenes, but it's with Amy, with Kate Hudson. You think, oh, she looks like Joyce. Is that the name of the prostitute? Oh, oh, you're right, Dingus. I'd, I'd always assume that it was Joyce, yeah, that it was Jessica Alba's character. But, um, but then you have to think, when he says she looks like her, I, you know, not that it would have mattered is what he says that I realize, well, Amy looks like his mom. Right. Or uh, what, as I was thinking, his sister. Because that, that girl looks so young in that scene where she's telling him no whack her on the ass. She looks like a babysitter-aged kind of a girl. She doesn't look like a mother. But, um, but mother makes far more sense for the, as far as the psychology are concerned. Well, and plus, why would there be scenes of the babysitter tied up in a Bible? You know? Well, not babysitter, I mean, but, scenes. but like an older sister kind of age that the father's molesting. But, but, That's it. But that, you know, that certainly makes more sense if it, it is his mother. It's just that actress doesn't seem like the type you would cast for the mother of the of the six-year-old, the seven-year-old, or eight-year-old. This is Texas, Dingus. They get married young in Texas, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly Wan, that's a mom's not babysitter. Can you say from the novel, Kelly Wan, does the novel have this stuff about, uh, about mothers and, uh, like, is that part of the novel? Is this, this sort of twisted memory he has of his mother? Is, it, is there that Freudian element in there? It's it's buried in there somewhere, I think. I can't remember. It's been a long time. But I saw that as a he was a reliable narrator, and there was an actual slideshow at the asylum, and it was the same people telling him Alp was dead. You were inventing that, no? Uh, yes. Like you, you really thought that that was real? That it was no. well? Oh, okay. But I don't think that's a huge <laughs> leap in reliability. I mean, you know. He's probably strung out on uh, diazepam. 
Uh, well, they, they, you could you could look at it that way. Do I guess they probably do direct them in there? Uh, let's, yeah. See, so that makes them reliable too. Uh, before we get to the ending, because I I have a lot I want to say about that. Let, let's talk a bit about uh, the cast. Um, was this cast awesome or incredibly awesome, Dingus? Um, I would say, save for one single choice, incredibly awesome. Well, oh, there was a choice you didn't. Huh? Now you got me guessing. Kelly, Wan, what did you think of the cast? Who's Dinkus talking about? Everyone I don't heard. know. That's what I'm wondering about. It made me like two... I never liked Kate Hudson, and I liked her in this, and I never liked Casey Affleck, and this was the movie that turned him for me, too. Who did Dinkus not like? Is it Ned yeah, Beatty? The album was good. Ned Beatty was great. good. I thought... I mean, and, and Simon Baker, and, and good Lord, Bill Pullman? What an amazing... I mean, Bill Pullman... That's got to be who Dinkus, you can't have a problem. I, you, how could you not love Bill that's Pullman? That's all that's left. Why do you have uh, why do you hate Pullman, you racist? As much as I have a man crush on him, I didn't care for Simon Baker at all. Oh, why? Simon Baker looked awesome. Like, he was the the big city guy from out of town who didn't understand yeah. this small-town curve. Barely in the movies, too. Uh, and he, why did you not like Simon Baker? Uh, he's in the back of that cop car smoking a cigarette and didn't believe it for a second. Uh, you know, I, I get what they're going for in casting him. I understand he's the DA, right? He's supposed to. He's supposed to be sort of the the. He's supposed to be a little of of a false note, and that's fine. That works for me. But I didn't think he. I didn't think he was up to what the rest of the cast were doing. Uh, I just didn't. I didn't get him. You know, right. he, he can't smoke a cigarette worth crap, and and maybe that maybe he's not supposed to be able to. I don't know. You can argue any of that away if he's the awkward character, but uh, but I he didn't work for me. But other than that, I loved the entire cast, especially Bill Pullman. And they give them all, I mean, and it's not, nobody just gets tossed in there and left to their own devices. I mean, all the characters, like, all the way down to Elias Codius and Tom Bauer, I love that guy. They all get great moments. And even the hair lip fella, who I know I've seen before. Tom he Bauer. High fidelity? Tom Bauer is so great, and so it's so exciting that there's such a payoff for those weird, uh, there's, there's those great weird moments where you see the camera looking at something from a distance, you know, you catch the moment where he's t- where uh, he has the scene with uh, Elias Codius, and you and there's that long shot of a reflection through a mirror. Who's watching this? And and when he's walking over to the cabin, and there's a long shot, and you're like, why are we suddenly in a in a different camera from far away? And then that's all explained because of Tom Bauer, and I love that. No, no, Tom Bauer is the. Uh... Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of... Um, it's Bob Maple, who's his boss, who's an uh, old fella. The the drunk, I forget that actor's name. I've seen him before. A crap, yeah, I, I screwed that up. The the bum guy, I forget his name. I thought right. it was Tom. Crap. I've seen him, but no, Tom Bauer's the guy. He plays Bob Maple. He's Casey Affleck's boss. He's the guy who gets drunk uh, and says, you know, it's always lightest before the dark. <laughs> Casey right. Affleck's like, no, I don't right. think that's how it goes. And he ends up committing suicide. Um but he also does some wonderful stuff where we're supposed to think that he is in on the plot to trap where, where everybody knows Casey Affleck is guilty and he gets this sense that a circle is closing around him. You, you know, if you go back a second time and watch the movie, the scenes with Tom Bauer and Casey Affleck and you, you see, you know, what Casey Affleck imagines is that he's on to him, that he knows what he's done Uh and presumably, I think what we're led to think is that he's part of this plot to keep Jessica Alba alive in order to entrap uh, Lou Ford. Um, so, so Tom Bauer, the actor playing Bob Maple, his boss, uh, gets some great stuff to do. And that guy's normally just a character actor who plays like the old cowboy or whatever. Uh, and I loved how much they gave him to do. Um, so was he part of the plot? 
Well, do we want to go here? Okay, let's let's get to the end of the, of the movie. So, I know it's fashionable to say I don't think that uh, it's an airtight case, but I am pretty convinced that the end of the movie is his hallucination from the asylum. No. Okay, I mean, that, and I I think it can go no, either way. Like no, I said, I don't no. think it's an airtight case, but I think it's deliberately ambiguous, and I think there are that was Alpha, not Sybil Shepherd, eh? Well, right, thank you. So it has to have been real. Yeah. Wait, what do you mean it's fashionable to say for this particular movie? No, no, for any general? movie. Like, you know, okay. like, in order to report, the end didn't happen. He's all in the, the tank. But I, I, I really do. He died at the Death Star, by the way. That was all his stuff. <laughs> but I, really, <laughs> I do think there's a case to be made that this narrator becomes increasingly unreliable and he is left in the asylum. Uh, and that none of what we see happening at the end actually happens, that it's all his imagination. Now, I, I don't. I'm not going to – I think it's a valid interpretation either way, but I think there are reasons to think that that's part of what the script was implying. Uh, so, for instance, let me just start with the outrageous appearance of Bill Pullman. Uh, <laughs> Bill Pullman seems to come in from another movie, and that's one of the reasons I, I love his, his appearance and that whole drive and his monologue and that awesome bit about a weed is a plant and not a place. Um, I love that. I love that bit. So he's a flower. And, and, it's a plant and, out of place, yeah. Oh, out of place. Not of, okay, because I was trying to figure out how he got his metaphor to work with that. Okay, it, it's a weed is a plant out of place. Right, exactly. Um, by the way, Jim Thompson went to agricultural college. I, so I was wondering, was this, was this dialogue taken straight from the book? Because that sounded... Uh, because he, he, the fellow Bill Pullman said, you know, his only training is from agricultural college. Uh, so that is a little outrageous. The fact that some lawyer shows up, gets him out of the insane asylum, and then just drops him off at home. Uh, now, that, that mm. well, there's a, there's a little more. Uh, so he seems that, that's <laughs> really stylized you. and weird. Then we get things where he's splashing the gasoline around his house, and we get shots seen from inside the house, out the window, of men with guns closing in on the house. Because we're being shown this from inside the house, through the window, presumably Casey Affleck either sees this or imagines it. So for some reason, you've got all these guys creeping up, laying siege to the house, before the car arrives with Jessica Alba. Now, it seems to take a long time, because he's going around in the basement and he's getting the gasoline and he's pouring out all the alcohol. Uh, I, I think that you could look at that as he's imagining all these guys closing in on him. Uh, he sits there. How does he know that Jessica Alba is going to show up? Why is he sitting there practicing the line, long time no see? Long time no see. Why is he practicing that line? If Jessica Alba is alive, how does he know this? Why, for instance, do you have this weird, stylized, everybody shows up at the end? You know, why would Ned Beatty's character show up at the end if all they're going to do is arrest him or, or whatever they're going to do? I don't know if they're going to, you know, why would they roll Jessica Alba up like that? Why would, for instance, Jeff shoot Jessica Alba, shoot Casey Affleck through Jessica Alba's body 
You know, why would they let her walk up that closely to him? How is it that suddenly we have this weird fire dynamics where he could sit there and smoke in the house with all the alcohol and gasoline poured everywhere, but as soon as a gun goes off, it's this massive operatic conflagration. I mean, it's like the end of the Ring of the Nibelungen, you know, the, the end of Gotterdamrung, where Siegfried, uh, Sieglinde, or uh, uh, Brunhilde rides a horse into a funeral pyre. You know, it's got this operatic funeral pyre moment where they're sitting there embracing each other while the flames consume them. Um, why, for instance, his, his line, which Dingus quoted to Hank Butterby, uh, don't say anything, Hank, they haven't written you any lines. I mean, I mean he, he clearly has this sense that this is, this is like a, the, the staged ending of the drama of his life that's been written for him. You know, he's not taking any accountability for anything. Instead, this is the ending that he's showing up for. Um, my now I want to go back and reread the end of the book because you're making me. You're well, I don't think I, I, I kind of doubt. Like I don't know if that's Jim Thompson's deal is to do like an imaginary ending, but but I do see it as, as something that he Johnson likes hallucinations and, and and unreliable narrators and fantasies and okay. Savage Night, the book he wrote the next year, is is filled with that stuff because the guy's losing his mind from tuberculosis, the hitman, right. And there's tons of that. There's tons of just like him going off in these tangents. You can't tell what's real. It's like naked lunch meets uh, hotspot. <laughs> but so also, too, the cops don't react to the gasoline. That's another point in your favor. Right, right. Uh, Dingus, does any of that work for you? My favorite thing of the, as far as practicing is concerned, because I was really struck by the whole uh, long time no see practicing moment, and also the moment before that where he's where he's at the mirror and saying it's ridiculous that I'm not wearing a tie. These pants don't fit. <laughs> These pants don't fit, and he makes a face at the mirror, and he's trying to decide whether to wear a tie or not, and he, tie, he buttons the button, he unbuttons it. I really loved that. Well, we don't um, see hallucinate before the ending, unless you count the slideshow. The slideshow, yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, is he, has he finally just cracked? Is he being drugged in the asylum? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I didn't interpret it that way, and I'm not really... Um, so Bill Pullman's I, I guess I'm fine. According I guess I'm Paul. fine either way. I, I just like, I like the, I like how he sets up the ending. I like how he, how we're, we go into the asylum, and he said, I didn't see that coming. And then he goes to the asylum, and then we have the slideshow, and I think it's clear that he's hallucinating there. And then we have this weird Bill Pullman thing, which Bill Pullman's character then explains away. There's no reason for me to do that. I don't know why I did that, that whole thing, which is wonderful. But then his the, the point that is in your favor, Tom, is, is the whole time where, where Lou Ford is recounting everything that happened to this, to this union lawyer, Who's who has you know supposedly an allegiance only to Elias Codius, mm-hmm. um, and he's recounting everything that happened in in all of its detail, and then you drop him off at his house seems odd. And as Kelly just said, the that they don't smell the fumes from the the gasoline also seems very odd to me. But by this by at this point in in the film, I was willing to accept these things because I see. I, I saw the first time through a lot of moments where I felt like, well, this really seems like a hitch here or we didn't get this covered because because most of it, if not all of it, is from his point of view. Right. Um, and so I'm I was and also I'm I'm sort of uh, comfortable with with noirs that you don't really understand what's going on. I mean, The Big Sleep is one of my favorite films and and the guy who wrote it didn't understand what the hell was going on in it. Well, he just uh, misplaced one body. The rest of it all ends up. 
So I was okay with it by then, but I, but I didn't even consider that that, you know, because there are moments where you see the guys outside the house. And at the end, when we have the conflagration, we see a shot from outside the house of the smoke pouring out of the house. And so I'm, I'm really a stickler for if we're going to have flashbacks, if we're going to have a narrator, if we're going to have the guy doing the narration, then we have to be able to sort of account for all of those things. Uh, of course, if, if he dies at the end, then you can't have a narrator. So, I mean, that's sort of all. Well, also, by the way, keep in mind, this is this becomes very clear a couple times in the movie. This house is his childhood home. This is there are a few times. House. Yeah. Right. There are a few times where he goes into a kid's bedroom, which I presume is his bedroom as, as a boy. So I, I think that's a, a powerful uh, metaphor as well. You know, this fact that his, his childhood home explodes and goes up in flames in this violent conflagra- conflagration that includes all the people that antagonized him and the, the woman that he is convinced that he loved. Uh, my theory is that Bill Pullman's real and he does go back to the house, but then he just torches it and himself. But no, but the cops are fake. That's my new theory. So I think you're half right. <laughs> well, I think that... he's aware that there's a piece of evidence they have. What, what I came to believe was that he understood, given what had happened in the story, that that piece of evidence they have is is the prostitute. And so that's why he knows at the end to be ready, and he has the knife. He knows this is going to happen. I how does he know that, though? Like, how would he know that, how would he suspect that, that Jessica Alba's not dead? Well, he knows that she no was funeral. in a and he knows that he was we don't told know that. that. But as he goes through in his mind over and over again, what did I do wrong? What did I leave right. out? They have a major piece of evidence. What could that be? This is what he, this is what he lands on. And for the sake of the convenience of this plot, he's right. Right, but the thing is, they don't, that we know of, they don't have a major piece of evidence. You know, when, when Simon Baker shows up with the letter from, from Amy, you know, none of that evidence, if Jessica Alba was still alive, they would imprison him. They would, uh, you know, they would charge him with murder and she would be a witness. He's safely in prison at that point. She's not under any danger from him. Uh, why they, do they, they... do imprison him. They imprison well, but him then they move him, him over in... to an insane asylum. And why does, why does it not proceed normally? Like, if there's a witness to him being a murderer, if the, if the DA has a case that strong, why does he just get shunted to an insane asylum and then magically sprung one day by a union lawyer? That just seems weird to me. I'm, I'm saying it's okay. That, that's a that's a good explanation, Kelly. There's been a lot of weird shit going on before then that we know has happened. Like Johnny Pappas was hung in the cell. That was all real, wasn't it? Like he did right. hang and didn't get caught, right. And, right. despite all the evidence, and no one suspected him then. Well, see, no people do suspect him, and I think that's when you go back and watch the movie, you can you can interpret it as this is the DA's plot. Yes, Jessica Alba is still alive, but she you hasn't know, said anything, and she says she hasn't. At the I, I didn't tell them anything. Right. Right. But there's also the tendency for Conway to want to keep everything as quiet as possible. So why, yeah, and why does he, yeah. what are they going to do, by the way? Are they showing up to arrest him or to kill him? Or, and why isn't Elias Codius there? I don't know. I mean, it, I, I'm perfectly willing to say, yeah, it's all real. It's just how it works in Texas. But I, I think that there's a strong case to be made. <laughs> it is. I think there's a strong case to be made that John Curran's script wanted it to be the, the hallucinations of a guy from inside the insane asylum uh, at the end. Um, I like that a lot. I just think that that uh, Michael Winterbottom is trying to be more straightforward that, than that. I mean, he he seems to be always saying what's going on with this character. I mean, and I know, gotta reread realistic black, except for the yeah. Uh, there's a lot of weren't there UFOs in 24 hour party people, Dingus? <laughs> 
I'm talking about this story. All right. Okay. In Tristram Shandy, there's a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, Hope Davis plays a ghost in Geneva. I, I think uh, Michael Winterbottom is, is more than happy to have hallucinations in his movies. Sure, uh, I remember all of them in, in this world. <laughs> uh, so let, let's talk. So I'm going to name uh, a bunch of movies, and I want you guys to tell me which one Michael Winterbottom did not direct. Are you guys ready for this? So the guy is a freaking chameleon. He's amazing. I'm going to name these movies, and one of them he did not direct. You guys have to pick which one he didn't direct. Are you ready? And he also works. He, he does like five movies a year, it seems like. Yeah. He's constantly got a movie coming. He's incredibly prolific, and they're all different. Okay, here we go. I've already given away some of them. Uh, Tris from Shandy, In This World, which is a movie about uh, some, uh, I think they're Pakistani immigrants to the U.K. Code okay. 47. The Claim, Nine Songs, Geneva, A Mighty Heart, 24-Hour Party People, Welcome to Sarajevo, and Dude, Where's My Car? Um, He did not direct Code 47. (laughs) It's not a movie. Um, But I just love, is Code 47 not the right title, by the way? Did I screw that up? It's Code 46, isn't it? Oh, good Lord. Okay, let me fix that. Racist. But I love how different, like, all of his movies are. And this certainly is, is, I'm not sure where I would put this. Like, do you get did, you, did you say the claim? I did say the claim. It does have points of similarity to the claim, uh, but uh, it, it's still you know the claim is basically a, a high Sierra's western uh, kind of. Um, okay, now I've only seen one of his movies, and this was it. So you're the Michael Winterbottom expert. Are you serious, Kelly Wand? I saw, dude. Where's my car? <laughs> that was. <laughs> And I see similarities because the end of that was a hallucination. <laughs> they never got out of the, the ostriches killed them. Now, Kelly Wand, have you seen other? So the script was done. Uh, by the way, this has been a, a killer inside me script has been uh, floating around for a while. This was made back in the 70s into a movie with Stacey Keach, which I have no desire to see. I haven't heard anything good about yeah. it. Uh, but there, a script's been floating around a while, and, and the fella attached to it before Michael Winterbottom was. Uh, Andrew Dominic, who ended up doing Assassination of Jesse James instead. There was a Brad Pitt version of this that was in the works that they dropped in nine eleven because of nine eleven. I thought it would be too much. I'm just I'm just I'm just quoting what I read in Wikipedia. Uh, Wait a minute, Andrew Dominic was attached to this with Brad Pitt, and he ended up doing no no. So Brad, there was a Brad Pitt version that was scrapped because of nine eleven. There was later an Andrew Dominic version that. Uh, for whatever reason, fell through. Thanks, and instead, he instead did Assassination of Jesse James. Which isn't violent and has the word assassination in the title. <laughs> well, did he bring Casey Affleck from that to this, or was Casey Affleck already involved in this? Uh, that's a good question. I do not know. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some connection there. Uh, and I also don't know, Dingus, if the Andrew Dominic one was based on a John Curran script. Oh. Uh, so I, I don't know. All, all I know is the property has been floating around for a while. Uh, so John Curran, who did the adaptation, uh, Kelly Wand, have you seen? Things that, I know you've seen all of these. Kelly Wand, have you seen Praise? We don't live here anymore, or The Painted Veil. No, I don't see movies with any of those words in the title. <laughs> <laughs> so those are all uh, John Curran movies. He's, he's also a director. I, I, I'm assuming he's Australian, but I've never verified that. Uh, racist. And John Curran, to me, it's fascinating that he. The the commonality amongst his movies so far, and it, it definitely fits in this, is exploring the the darker side of sexuality, mm-hmm. like 
how we are at our most vulnerable and sometimes our most pathetic because of uh, sexual idiosyncrasies or repression or whatever. Uh, and this started with Praise, which was also an adaptation of a novel. Uh, and Praise is about a relationship between two sort of slackers in Brisbane. Uh, and it is so incredibly sexually candid and frank. Um, uh, and then the movie he did after that was called uh, We Don't Live Here Anymore, uh, which I recently rewatched. Uh, and is, uh, it's about two married couples uh, and it, it's based on a couple of short stories by, I'm going to screw up his name, Andre Debus, the guy who wrote In the Bedroom. Does anybody know mm. that correctly? Uh, no, the Bedroom is correct, yes. <laughs> uh, and then The Painted Veil, based on a Somerset Mom novel, which is all about sort of being uh, this sort of Christian uprightness and atoning for sin. But in the Somerset Mom novel, there's a, there's a an undercurrent of adultery that John Curran really brings to the forefront. And I, I think in the, in the movie with uh, Naomi Watts and uh, Edward Norton. So this is a John Curran script and it carries forth this idea of exploring the darker side of sexuality. Uh, so I see a lot in common with the, the earlier stuff that he's done. Hmm. Uh, did you get aroused? So here's a funny thing. If you look at the if you look at the cover of the box, uh, there's it's Jessica Alba in a I think like a, you can see her shoulders. Like it's clear she's naked, and and they're playing up like Kate Hudson looking all sexy. Um, this is an incredibly like like there there's sexual. This is the most Jessica Alba nudity of any movie. And and, yeah. it, and it's really weird and uncomfortable. Like I could imagine seeing this. I, I could imagine this kind of being confusing to some people because they think they're going to sign up to see a hot movie with Jessica Alba in her underwear, and that's not really what you're getting here. Uh, well, right, right, there, there, there are other things like beating to her pulp afterwards and strangling Kate Hudson, which we've all we've all been there. Well, the the, the early scene with Jessica Alba, you know, where he first comes in there and by the way i love the fact that she knocks his hat off that is one of my that is one of my favorite beat downs in a movie <laughs> the fact that she doesn't i mean she slaps him at one point and then she hits him but then she aims at the hat and she knocks that off of his head that's what she's going for i loved that statement um that that scene is really uncomfortable and and weird and it walks a thin line between being absurd and laughable and maybe a little sexy and uncomfortable uh it's just a really delicate difficult scene and i think it works really well you know you, and and i give a it lot of the, the tone of the movie too it does scenes. Yeah. and a lot of the credit i think goes to casey affleck uh he does such an incredible job of being likable and creepy uh, I, I'm reminded of the very opening scene of Assassination of Jesse James, where Sam Shepard basically tells him, and I forget the, the exact lines, but basically tells him, you give me the creeps, get away. <laughs> he, he pulls his gun on him and he runs him off. Uh, and that's, that's a quality that he really just exudes, Casey Affleck does. And the movie uses it so well, uh, and specifically in these delicate, weird sexual scenes. Uh, and he also he gives a sense of, of discovering himself. I mean that that scene where he is is beating her before she says no, don't say you're sorry. 
you get a real sense that something is happening to him that hasn't happened before or in a long time, that there's an awakening happening. Yep. You get a real sense that he's, that he's lost, and, and then he needs to pull back, and she says, no, no. And, and this, this wonderful, beautiful intimacy develops between the two of them that you see, you know, as, as he talks about during the montage, I went back the next day and the next and the next. And then when he, when he remembers it later, there's a real tenderness for that, between them. And I, and I think he really does love her when he says, I'm sorry, you know, when he says he loves her before he kills her. I, th- I believe him. The, the emotions that are passing over his face during that beating scene are, I mean, that, that scene is just so, uh, it, it's just so grueling on so many levels. And part of it is watching Casey Affleck. I mean, watching these emotions flicker over his face. And like you say, I think it's when he says, I love you. I mean, that's not, he's not just lying to her, uh, you, you know, and he's, you, you said before, Dingus, that that scene wasn't gratuitous, and I kind of dis- maybe I'm misunderstanding misusing the word gratuitous, but well, it's so graphic. Uh, it's it's a key pl- plot point, though. It, exactly. Well, okay, good point. You're right, right. Gratuitous would be if it was just thrown in for some sort of like lurid reasons. Uh, it's a key plot point, and it just no pun intended, but it just pulls no punches from the way that it's shot, the angle from which it's shot. Where, you know, they, they trick the angle, of course, but it looks like you're seeing his face, his fist hitting her face. Mm-hmm. You, you know, with the sound, with the impact, with the makeup job on her. I mean, it, yeah. it, there aren't many movies that are willing to really show the after effects of a beating like it does here. Um, the Kate Hudson one was worse to me because the sound was worse. That one. But he also no doesn't way. love her. I mean, he, he tells her not to speak and he spits in her face. And and he moves his foot too when she reaches out to touch his boot and he moves his boot out of the way. Yeah, yeah. He he also. I don't think he takes pleasure from that. This is why I don't think it's uh, why I might have used the the word gratuitous or gory. Uh, It doesn't feel like torture to me. It feels like he's saying it'll be over soon in the Jessica Alba painting. He's he's he's. This is necessary for him. It doesn't seem that he's taking particular pleasure from this. Whereas after, the, after he presses the cigar into the bum's hand and after he walks out of Johnny's cell, you see this smile on his face that he's taken. He's, he's, he's feeling pleasure at this moment or he's feeling something else. And I don't see that after, after he kills uh, Jessica Alba or Joyce. I forget what her, what her character name is. Lakeland, I think. Yeah. Hmm. I think there's a different quality to the needling that you bring up earlier, Tom, right. which I'm, I'm curious is if that comes from the book, because he, he mentions it, and then you don't really see a whole lot of him being corny and needling people. But, but you see him saying, then I started doing that. And then you see this example of him with the cigar in the bum's hand, and then he takes pleasure from that. Yeah. Um, and I wonder what else is going on or if that comes from the book. But I, you know, I, have no, I have no way of looking at that. But it's such an interesting character insight to say I started needling people. Uh, do you guys see any points of continuity with movies like Bronson and Clockwork Orange? Continuity. I, I, just as far as movies about reprehensible, violent characters. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, well, I, I was reminded a little bit of Bronson and Clockwork Orange. I can I see only a little get... bit of Bronson. I, don't, I have never seen Clockwork Orange, although it's been sitting at my house for about two months now. You'll think um, it's dated, I predict, if you see it. You'll go, mm, this movie's overrated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I think I see where you're getting at with Bronson, although I'm intrigued to hear you talk more about it. 
Well, it, it's uh, uh, just as the the portrait, the sort of the psychological portrait of, a, of an incredibly violent, morally reprehensible person. Uh, Bronson has a little bit of that. Bronson is much more theatrical, and Clock of Corn just like that as well. Uh, this has more of a sort of a gritty, realistic, psychological feel to it. Um, but Bronson is very much about getting into that character's head, uh, and that's what this movie is as well. You know, what's it like from, from the inside of, you know, inside this guy's head? How does he get this way? How does he do these things that he does? How does he feel about them? Um, I only mind when animals get hurt in movies, but if women and children are always fair game. You're a terrible person, Kelly Wand. What? It's all, but you know, they're acting. <laughs> With the animal, you go, oh, wait, and maybe they actually killed the animal because it was like, it was cheaper or something. Uh, were any animals harmed in, in the making of this movie? No, so it was an awesome movie. <laughs> There's not even any horses in it. So, Kelly Wand, you uh, weren't a uh, Casey Affleck fan before now, but, but you are now. Can we put you down on the Casey Affleck is awesome bandwagon? Yeah, he's awesome in this. He played that role very... He made a lot of interesting choices. And does the, and that's what I meant by it being different from the book, because it, it comes across differently in the book. Because you're always in his head, and you can't tell how insane everyone thinks he is, but in this you see them interacting. And you can see where you can kind of go, yeah, he seems like a an affable, quiet kind of guy. But you can see how he'd get away with it for a long time, because he just mm -hmm. seems so unmoved by everything. You go, he's just you know, one of those dudes. And as far as an actor, he gets away with a lot of things that I think would be affectations from other actors. Uh, specifically, Dingus, you mentioned him grimacing in the mirror when he's practicing, doing some of those kind of things. Uh I, that that's a difficult line, and, and it works. The one that I love, and this is really small. I don't know if you guys caught this. Uh, early on, right before the he runs into the bomb and puts this cigar out in his palm, he's at a diner, and the woman says, you know, how come you don't carry a gun? And he says, well, I'll tell you a secret. There's no crooks in this town. And then he goes to the owner, and the owner is Johnny Pappas' father, and the owner says, you know, thanks for doing what you did for Johnny. And he says, you know, I believe you get out of life what you put into it. Then he says... As a way of parting, he says, well, I got to I gotta get going. <laughs> I got a whole lot of getting around to do. And right before he says that, he does this weird sort of like rolling his eyes and grimacing. And it's like he's sighing, but he doesn't quite know what he's going to say next. And it's just this awkward facial affectation thing that I just love that moment. Uh, and it, it's this weird De Niro-esque or, or maybe Al Pacino-esque like overdoing it thing. But it works. It works really well. Uh, does any of you guys remember that little look? No. Yeah, I do because I because for me it's it really is a perfect sort of uh, call or analog to the Emir moment you just referenced. Is that it seems like he's trying to think of what, what should I say here? What does a normal what does a normal person say here? <laughs> and his yeah. face sort of panics like. <laughs> Like, oh, fuck, what am I going to do? Yeah. Uh, when he gets found out, it's when he's not reacting. That's when people start going, this guy's nuts, because he's not reacting to any of these deaths. The well, the scene where uh, where Simon Baker lets him read the letter from, from uh, Kate Hudson, you know, and his reaction is, she was so damn talky, wasn't she? Talk to, post, talk to fence post right out of the field. I, I mean, he's just so cool and calm and collected there. Like, he knows how to react in that situation. The scenes, too, with uh, Elias Codius. You know, there's some great, like, hard-boiled banter between the two of them. Uh, but it's also, he's a cop, too, so he knows interrogation techniques. And stuff. Right, right. And he knows what, what flips off red flags of law enforcement. 
And it's cover. That's another reason you want to be a cop. Huh, Tom? I'll buy that. Yeah. Uh, well, that scene when they're in the car, it just seems to come out of nowhere where Elias Codius, who I think of as the poor man's there. Robert De Niro, comes into the car with him. And and he's telling him, you should, at the end of the scene, he's saying, you should go away. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it does sort of, it, if there, that is the the closest I feel of, in any of the scenes, I think, with, with Elias Cody, is that where he's saying, I, I'm just not sure where to go right now. I'm not sure what to go, where to go with this. Uh, how close is this guy on me? And uh, but uh, but any yeah. of those things, I, I never felt like he was overdoing it. I never felt like uh, any of those things that he was doing was mugging in any way. And I know you're not, that's not what you're saying, Tom. I always got the sense that he was he was that the character was saying, "Okay, what am I? What does a normal person do in this right. situation?" Uh, there's I also a sense from from some of the scenes from Amy too, although I can't really be specific about it. Um, uh, that uh, what you were saying, Kelly, Wan, about how good he is at cover. When he turns around, getting flat out busted from having had sex with uh, with <laughs> Jessica Alba, turns that into a marriage proposal. <laughs> by the way, that scene is just like, oh my! God. I mean, that's just like he's like. It reminded just... me of uh, Splice when Adrian Brody got mad. <laughs> good Lord, Kelly, Wan. <laughs> I wish I'd had the Britney Spears queued up for that. You're mad at me for having sex with our genetic experiment. <laughs> You're the one who has those montages about her father. So shut up. Yeah, him. What? Dingus, we lost. He's what? back. He's back. Well, we, you cut out Dingus. Whatever you were saying was so provocative, the internet censored you. <laughs> That's what happened. I was just, I was just so enthusiastic about that moment where he stops Amy at the door and says, "Come on, open up." And and uh, you know you can say what you want about me, but uh, you know don't you know don't say about the girl I'm going to marry that that she would go around with a guy who would go around with whores. That's so just yeah difficult. But he that's plays like it the out. brother thing, like him getting offended by the truth, like like him taking revenge for his crimes. Uh, can can we talk like real quick brother. about? Yeah. That's right. Let's talk real quick about the music because I ah good I was going to bring that up yep yep I loved the music in this uh, both the uh, the found music or whatever you call it you know the shame 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 on you stuff which which constantly seemed to be uh, perfectly cutting against what what a more ham-handed thriller would do mm-hmm. um, and and also the the regular score music like when she's reaching for her purse when Amy's reaching for her purse it felt very much like a like something Carter Burwell might have done. Mm. Uh, and those two things against each other, it was just perfect. The music in this film is perfect. And you're leaving out a very important element, Dingus. What is that? The opera. I don't understand opera. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it made great use. You know, he, he, put, he listens to opera. You know, he would put on opera. And again, it That's his, a sign what, he's a serial killer. If you if you think of the ending as something that he's imagining from the insane asylum, you, you know it's that aria from uh, it's a Donizetti aria that 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 fantastic aria that's playing over the ending. You know that's what he imagines his finale would would play out to. Uh, I just, I just love the use of uh, opera. Uh, in this. I I like that too. I I my suspicion is that that's something of his father's because uh, uh, because when the bum comes. All right. I guess you don't want to say it, Dingus. Fine. What a dick. I know. God, he just... That's so him. Off. That's so him. 
Well, so finish uh, his sentence for him, because you, you always know what he was Because when the bum comes, uh, yeah, there's uh, a bunch of albums on the bookshelf that uh, don't belong to... Dingus, that's the stupidest yeah. thing you've ever said on this pod. And that's, <laughs> which, which that's <laughs> Tom's quote. Yeah, I can't believe you said that, Dingus. I'm embarrassed. I apologize. Uh, what made you think that the the, the opera was his father's? When the, something about the bum you were saying, and then you hung up on us. Let's see if it matches exactly what Tom said. I don't know what the heck you guys are talking about. (laughs) All right. I guess you were right then. Um, Uh, Go ahead, Kelly Wand. Thompson wrote a novelization for the TV series Ironside when times were lean later. 60s. Is that Raymond Burr in the wheelchair? Yeah. Wow. That's your favorite uh, detective show. Uh, My favorite bit of music uh, from Killer Inside Me. You guys know what it was? That's a, this is a fun game. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've queued it up. I'm going to play a little bit of it for you. Ready for this? Uh-huh. One, two, three, not only you and me. Got one eighty to three, and I'm going between them. One, two, three, beat upon my three, getting down with three feet. I love the scene when they were playing. I uh, love that. By the way, one of the things... We didn't talk enough about the movie. Didn't we? We gotta, yeah, I, I could go more, uh, but don't say anything. Uh, right. So what, here's one of the things about the movie. They do some great period shots when he goes to Austin, and I am convinced that the reason that they had the budget to do those was because they had Jessica Alba in her underwear. So a lot of the production mm-hmm. budget, I, I think, goes to getting a famous person in uh, like sexy clothes that you can put on the box cover. There you go. Whatever it takes. Yep, exactly. Let's do a three by three. You guys ready? Yes. Okay. That's clever filmmaking, then. It is. She could, so she's using her own. Never mind. That's <laughs> all the awesome movies that could be made using Aunt Jessica Alba's underwear. Uh, if only she'd been in that Avatar thing. Ugh. All right, this three by three is three uh, instances of actors playing musical instruments. Uh, and the reason that I bring this up and not just characters playing musical instruments is I always think it means it, it, it's particularly meaningful when you actually see the actor playing an instrument. Uh, you, you can't just like, like for instance, in Amadeus, I'm sure they just faked Tom Hulse's hands or whatever on the, the, the piano. Uh, Wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah, cross that off your list. Uh, so I notice when I'm watching a movie whether or not they cut the frame so you can't see the actor with his fingers on the guitar frets or whatever. Like in this movie, we saw Casey Affleck actually doing a little piano work. Uh, mm-hmm. wasn't a big deal, but he obviously can play a little piano, and uh, he did a little racist joke. And uh, So what I want from you guys, three scenes of actors playing musical instruments. Presumably they should be meaningful. Maybe it's just cool that the actor played the instrument, whatever works for you. Uh, we start with Kelly Wand, because Kelly will be introducing our 3x3 three three for next week. So, Kelly Wand, what is your number three instance of an actor playing a musical instrument? Uh, I guess Groundhog Day. Bill Murray learning the piano. Does he actually... So he, so he actually... You know plays, how long he's been in there, yeah, by how good he gets with the piano. Cause ah. Know, oh, it, took him, it takes three years to learn the piano, so you know he's there for at least three years. So the, him playing the piano is an important part of uh, the metaphysical framework of the movie. Does he? I haven't seen Groundhog Day in forever. Like he starts out bad, and you see him getting better over yeah. the course of the. He goes to see the same teacher, and it's every day. So right. it's, she sees her for three years, but if it's, she thinks it's his first lesson. 
that many times. I guess in the original script, he was doing it for thousands of years. <laughs> so he could have, they, they, they changed it to 10. I think he's there for 10 years. That's what Harold Ramis said. But okay. if he was there for thousands of years, he could learn a lot of instruments. And to do hip-hop, like Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> for piano. But he only needed to learn one instrument to get out of the loop. That was how he earned it from the angels that govern time loops. I think you're making that up. I think they, I read somewhere that it was supposed to be like a voodoo curse, and they cut the scene where he gets cursed by a, uh, a chick he works with at the news station. I guess Haitian camera woman or something. Are you sure you're not thinking of Drag Me to Hell? Weekend at Bernie's 2 was also voodoo themed. <laughs> the Empire Strikes Back of the Bernie's trilogy. Ouch. So yeah, Bill Murray, piano, Groundhog Day. Good. Okay. But I'm assuming he can play piano in real life because I don't know. Well, now, do you see him? Are they faking it in Groundhog Day, or do you actually see him play? Because a lot of mine that I thought of, I, I went back and looked up, and I was surprised at how many movies where I thought the actors really were playing the instruments. They actually weren't. Uh, well, does that matter for the category? Yeah, yeah. This is actors playing instruments. This is not just the guy. In, the guy in Deliverance couldn't play the banjo, apparently. But he looked ah. so inbred they used him. Ah. So I was going to go with that, and I went, oh, Tom will get mad at me because the retarded guy couldn't really play with me. <laughs> I, I think that, yeah, I, just, I guess they faked it well enough, though, because I never knew. What's that actor's name, by the way, Kelly Wand? Uh, something Redden? William Redden? Is that it? Are you know. making that up, or do you actually know that? Yeah, everybody knows that. I grew oh. up in the 70s. I'm old. <laughs> I didn't know that. All right, good. So Bill Murray playing the piano on Groundhog Day. Do you recommend Groundhog Day? Does it hold up? Yeah. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's a comedy classic. It's been deemed culturally significant by the uh, Pentagon or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not allowed to see it anymore. Yeah. Can't see it. But I guess that's why, because he learns piano in it. So the Pentagon went, all right. Good. Well, Dingus... Let's see you top that. What do you got that, that tops uh, Bill Murray doing piano on Groundhog Day? Hold on. I need to check the Pentagon list of top movies. <laughs> Isn't that there? Is it the census? I forget. Uh, mine is definitely... Oh. I don't think mine is on the Pentagon's list, but I'll go ahead and give you guys a quote from the one that's my number three. All right. I ain't played for nobody in years. Uh, Winter's Bone. Deliverance. No and no. Winter's Bone was taken off the table because I'm convinced it would have been number one for all of us. By the way, am I right about that? In Parenthood. What? Steve Martin in Roxanne. Do it again, Dingus, because I can sometimes guess the movie from what accent I think you think you're doing. Right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> all right, here you go. I ain't played for nobody in years. Okay, that's definitely Arnie. So it's either <laughs> Under Siege 2, Dark Territory. I do not know. I don't no, I don't think I've seen this movie, Dingus. I think you Give have. Us another uh, the actor is uh, a gentleman named Samuel Jackson. You know what? Yeah, that did not. I was thinking of Blacksmith Snake Moan, but you, that sat, did not sound at all like Samuel Jackson. So yeah, I was throwing. Your you Samuel off. Jackson is terrible. You were doing what? I was throwing you off. <laughs> and it is Black Snake Moan, right? It is absolutely a 2006 film directed by Craig Brewer called Black Snake Moan. 
Is that so, the one where he says, I'm tired of these motherfucking snakes and this motherfucking moan? That's the other snake movie. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, Dingus, because I, I, he, he does play in that, but I, I looked up in an interview, he's not like a guitar aficionado or anything. Like, I think, did they have to cheat much of that, or did they do a good job of showing that he's actually playing? They do a great job, and he, and I remember this, you know, the, this film, um, well, I loved Hustle and Flow, which was this director's uh, first film. Craig uh, Brewer. Yeah, Craig Brewer. Uh, Black Snake Moan didn't do as much for me. I didn't get it uh, the first time I saw it. I get it a little more having watched it again this week. Um, and and what I did remember going into it and why it occurred to me even to watch it is that I know Samuel Jackson did work his tail off to learn uh, to play guitar for this part. It was really important to him. He got a really good guitar teacher, and then on the movie he was working on, um, one of the one of the dudes on the crew was was a guitar teacher, and he constantly worked with this guy, and he worked with another person. He really worked his tail off, and I, and I'm not sure. I, I remember hearing it in some commentary somewhere and I don't think it was Craig Brewer talking it was it might have been an actor it might have been Craig Brewer but I don't know I don't remember but I remember somebody referring to Samuel L. Jackson working on the guitar and working and just working it and calling him up and saying hey listen to this I'm doing this and he was really excited about trying to conquer this and brought to the part sort of a different different ideas different interpretations for how to play the song in much the, the same way that you might use different interpretations to say lines or to to interpret a character and in the in the particular moment because what you asked for tom and what i loved is you asked for particular moments hmm. where where these actors are 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 playing these instruments and so i really tried to isolate particular moments and i and i tried to also look to when, when are they cheating and when are they not like when is when are we using hand doubles and when are we not and i really tried to to, to isolate those things because what what developed for me in watching this and really sort of going over this, I love this category, Tom, is, is how these actors express their characters through playing these instruments and, and how the characters express themselves through playing these instruments and how they're communicating to, to the world of, of, to their world and to us through how they play. And, and there's this wonderful moment uh, where he plays the titular song, where he, get, he there, there's a few moments where he plays. And the, the moment where he plays in the bar, uh, which is Bucket of Blood, you don't really see him playing almost at all. But when he's playing with um, Christina Ricci sitting at his feet, you see him playing. You see him getting out the guitar, and the sound is amazing of the amp and him plugging in the amp and the storm outside mm-hmm. and him putting the slide on his finger and working the slide on the on the neck of the guitar and him picking out the notes. And it's it's clear he knows what he's doing. You know, they might have put in some other some other sound later. They might have sweetened it later. But it's clear he understands that instrument. And what he's doing with that instrument is important to her at that moment as a character. And he's making a confession about himself. He's telling a story about himself. Mm-hmm. It's very important to the film. And, and it's also important to her. And she grabs onto him like he's an anchor. While he, and asks him to keep playing. And it, the way he uses that instrument is beautiful, and yeah, the actor knows what he's doing. God, I love that scene. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because I couldn't find that scene, and I didn't rewatch the movie, uh, so I'm so glad you picked that. That's awesome, Tinkus. Kelly, wonder have you seen Black Snake Moon? Uh, just the hot parts. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, like the movie we saw this week. 
only. Uh, I'm not, uh, <laughs> can't sign off on that. <laughs> All right, well, my number three, I want to do my, my number three also features Christina Ricci. Uh, except she's playing the instrument in this one. Uh, so this is kind of a throwaway scene, but it's just so adorable, and I so love this movie so much. It's one of my favorite movies. So in the ice storm, there's a scene where uh, Joan Allen is uh, setting the table for dinner, and she's talking to Christina Ricci, who, who plays her daughter. And Christina Ricci's trying to get some money. Uh, and she's like, I need money for uh, band uniforms. <laughs> Joan Allen says... <laughs> Oh, I, th- I thought you quit because I never hear you practice anymore. <laughs> Christina Ricci, you see this panicked look on her face, and she's like, oh, I, oh, I don't need to practice. <laughs> and, and so Joan Allen says, oh, well, your father and I would love to hear uh, how you're coming along, maybe after dinner. <laughs> and then we cut to Christina Ricci setting up in the living room with Kevin Klein and Joan Allen on the couch. She's got a little music stand in front of her, and she's playing a trombone, and she's just doing these four awkward notes on the trombone that are terrible. <laughs> And Kevin Allen, uh, Kevin Klein, and Joan Allen are just sort of sitting there appreciatively. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's it's sort of a throwaway gag, and I I just love that movie so much, so I wanted to get something from that in there. But it's Christina Ricci actually unable to play the trombone. Uh, <laughs> I wanted one where it's someone who can't play the instrument. I totally couldn't think of a good one though. So. This one also has a little weird, uncomfortable Christina Ricci cheesecake in it, uh, involving her playing the trombone. Uh, there's a, there's a shot of one of the, the boys who, uh, I guess he must be 12 or 13. He's in band with her, and he's looking down at the crack of her pants on the back, and you can see her butt crack while she's playing the trombone. Uh, so. Why is that uncomfortable? <laughs> I could play that thing like uh, something, something. That reminds me of the movie we did this week. How about that? Even in Adam's Family Values, she's fair game. She's a little too young, Kelly Wan. Sorry. Not not for the ancient Egyptians. That's true. The standard I use. Yeah, and look what happened to them. In court. Oh, yeah, good point. (laughs) Wonders that lasted... Five civilization iterations. All right, Kelly, what is your number two instance of an actor playing an instrument? Uh, my number one's good, but this one isn't. That's your hint. So, I, uh, by the way, I'm going to predict right now that, that Dingus, who's a huge jerk, I can't stand that guy, is going to steal my number one. Yeah. Uh, well, so I agree. I agree that Dingus movie. is a huge jerk. I agree with that. That guy. Good Lord. All right, so your number, so you're apologizing, Kelly Wand, already for your number two by promising that your number one is awesome. Is that what I hear you doing? Yeah. All right. Let's just rush through it so we can get to the number one. Which is the <laughs> okay. one. This is the less interesting one. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll do a quote from it. Mm-hmm. Zug, zug. <laughs> so let's see, George Harrison on, like, prehistoric bongos. And- <sighs> yeah, Ringo Starr. Oh, oh Ringo <laughs> the other one of those guys. Okay. <laughs> How many times so, have you done the Zug Zug quote on this podcast? <laughs> well, Tom knows it now. He's off by a beetle. He's off by one instrument. But also, it's not. It's not so much him discovering drumsticks. It's to see where they discover music. But they learn by burning the old man's hands in the fire. Jack. Oh Goldberg. yeah, yeah. He does backup vocals, so that. I remember that scene. Okay. Yeah. So it's like that's fire was discovered so they could use it to burn high-pitched octaves out of water. Oh, I can't believe I remember that scene. Wow. 
Aha. <laughs> you remember the scene with Caveman. All right, so we'll uh, we'll just power on past that and go to Dingus's number two, assuming you're okay with that. movie with an Asian caveman. It's the only non-racist caveman movie. I'm sure there's got to be some Japanese caveman movies, don't you think? No. no. All right. It didn't exist yet. Racist. Okay, Dingus. <laughs> All right, is it really my turn again so soon? I oh, know. All right, here's a quote. I know, it's going to be actually, uh, it's going to be, Dialogue. Hmm. Multiple quotes, okay. In honor of the fact that Jim Thompson uh, contributed dialogue to a Stanley Kubrick film. So, Ah. uh, here we go. Ready for the dialogue, folks? Go. Hey, give us Beethoven's Fifth. Sure, babies, no worries. Symphony or Concerto? That's Jim Thompson? That's Stanley Kubrick? No. Stop it. Well, what, you said Jim well, Thompson well, yeah, contributed well, dialogue, well, Stanley Kubrick film, so yeah. now I'm going to do dialogue. <laughs> Just, yeah. It's going to be nothing that, related to Kubrick. Yeah, it has nothing to do with them. I'm just doing dialogue because he did dialogue. For this movie? No, he had nothing to do with this movie. I'm just. Why did you even say their names at all? <laughs> so, so I would get this reaction from you. <laughs> well played, Dingus. Oh, he's playing so, us like a fiddle. Uh, yeah, he's playing Just us like John Hawkins like, on a banjo. Uh, D.W. Griffith. I will now do a quote from. <laughs> uh, give us Beto. Is it Spinal Tap? Uh, it's not, and I don't know. Uh, I think you guys must have seen this film, but I don't know if you have. It's a it's a film called Shine. Um, oh, that's see, because he racist and doubles all throughout Shine, Dingus. What'd you say? Unless, are you doing Noah Taylor or Jeffrey Rush? Oh, Jeffrey Rush. Okay. And um, the the thing that uh, you know, I I remember um, having a really strong reaction to this film. It might have been who I saw it with. Uh, is it? Well, that was definitely part of it. But um, but I watched it again, and there's so much it, you don't see almost anything that Noah Taylor is doing. Right. You know that whole Rock Three um, scene. You, you don't see anything. But uh, there's this lovely little scene um, after uh, after uh, David Helfgott, uh, Jeffrey Rush, uh, goes back to this. Um, he, he gets out of the mental institution. He lives with a well-meaning woman who then uh, dumps him off sort of in an apartment hotel sort of situation. And he has his own piano and he can play it again. And he plays Hungarian Rhapsody. And it's clear that it's Jeffrey Rush playing. Uh, he's, oh. he, Jeffrey Rush... Uh, worked hard to relearn piano to be able to do his own hand doubling. It's, it's not him playing in the soundtrack, right. but it's him playing the instrument. Now, what he's playing might very well be rubbish, but it's not that sort of thing that you often see from piano where it's, you see the guy's face, you see a reflection of keys, you just see keys. It's very clear from the way the scene is directed that it's Jeffrey Rush working those keys. And it's very passionate, and it's, it's, it's just this, it's him hunched over, cigarette out of his mouth, this old uh, piano with cigarette burns on the keys, and he's, he's, he's just working his way through that, and there's a pause in the middle where he just looks up, and then he works his way through the rest of the song, and then somebody yells at him to to stop it, and he falls asleep over the piano. And but it's but it's it's clear to me that the actor has worked 
his tail off to get back to the point where he can at least fake it. And he's working on this instrument. Now, maybe the audio is not what he's done. And in fact, it is not what he's done. But it is him working on that instrument. And I, I love that moment better than the other. There, there's sort of the more... Um, uh, pyrotechnic sort of, not pyrotechnic, but the, that, that classic film moment of, of him going into the restaurant and doing the flight of the bumblebee where the restaurant owner has made fun of him and he does that whole bit where you can see him playing that tune as well. But I really love this moment where he's doing the, that particular piece of music in this, in this sad apartment over this old piano and he's just feverishly working it. I love that. Good, good. Uh, I looked up to Noah Taylor, Rachmaninoff's third bit, uh, and was disappointed. I mean, I, what do you expect? I mean, it, considering it's a notoriously challenging piece of music, but was disappointed at how obvious that Noah Taylor is never actually playing any of that. It is in, in Shine. Uh, but I didn't follow up to any of the Jeffrey Rush stuff. So, good pick. Yeah, Noah Taylor seems to be doing none of that. I mean, he does a great job acting it. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, the little kid at the very beginning, uh, where, where he's doing the... Um, the polonaise where the the piano's marching away from him seems to be doing more looks like he's doing more of the playing I although <laughs> he is. Um but but Jeffrey Rush you can definitely tell that he worked it. And um and also this this movie I just I love the way this movie, having seen it again, uh and I remember my friend Aaron who I saw this with, um saying when I saw it that, that he um he felt like this movie really gets music. And, and for me, this movie gets music and madness. I mean, it understands sort of a sense of madness and what music can mean to a person. And, and the way, again, what, what I loved about this category is how, how a character can, can learn to express or communicate who he is or who he's becoming through an instrument. Mm-hmm. Good. I thought biopics about musicians were off the table. I hope not, because my actually no, mine isn't a biopic. So well, I, you know, to Kelly one, that's not a bad point because this is that is a little bit cheating because this is music wall to wall in this movie and it is about music, and I think that Tom's uh, point or Tom's intention was more about incidental moments. So I felt a little bit guilty about using this. So you know, you're right to call me on that. Well, it's certainly one I considered, and I also thought, well, we'll we'll do our runners up, but I, I did not mean to take biopics off the table. Uh, and, and I hope I didn't because my number two, it's not a biopic, but you could make the same argument about, about Caveman. it. Uh, Caveman, that would apply as well. Exactly. Uh, I don't think either of you had seen. Oh, go ahead, Dingus. No, I was just going to say Caveman is an auto biopic, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's found video. So neither of you has seen my number two, I don't think. And it's, it's not a biopic, but it's clearly about uh, the death of Kurt Cobain. Uh, it's Gus Van Sant's movie, The Last Days. Um, and it features, it's, it's a very challenging movie to watch because uh, not a lot happens. Uh, the movie seems to consist largely of Michael Pitt just sort of stumbling around, mumbling, wearing a dress, dragging a shotgun around. Uh, it does these weird things where you see a scene and then it cuts to the next scene, but you're actually looking at the concurrent time that you just saw from another perspective. And then the scenes match together, and you're like, oh, yeah, I just saw that happening from this other perspective. So it's weirdly nonlinear. Uh, it's a classic example of what you call mumble core, uh, which is that school of filmmaking where there's a lot of improvisation, the actors aren't clearly miked, uh, and it just sort of unfolds. So Last Days is very much that. Um, but Last Days also, to me, gets Nirvana. 
uh, Gus Van Sant, I mean, say what you will about some of his movies, whether they work or not. I mean, he's that whole Seattle grunge movement. I mean, he's a part of that uh, in his own way. Um, he, he comes from that Pacific Northwest. As a matter of fact, that's probably where Mumblecore was born, the same place as grunge rock, oddly enough. Um, and the reason that I say Last Days gets Nirvana is... I'm going to describe for you the movie, and I think the description of the movie also applies to Nirvana's music. And Last Days is, I would say, pointless, slightly ridiculous, with an undertone of loneliness and alienation, and moments of intense, unfocused frustration. That applies both to Last Days and to Nirvana's uh, music. And I think any Nirvana fan who can stomach a little experimental uh, movie making will appreciate The Last Days. So the specific moment in The Last Days, Michael Pitt, I don't know if you guys... Dingus, do you know who Michael Pitt is? Uh, Yeah, he's in Hedwig. Right. I I guess I don't know if people know his name or not. I mean, he's a a young, good-looking guy. Uh, He tends to play fairly slower characters. Um, he's also in The Hawk is Dying. He plays uh, yeah, right. a kid in that. Um, uh, so, so Michael Pitt plays a character named Blake. He's obviously supposed to be Kurt Cobain. Uh, and he's, he's retreated to this house uh, after running away from a, a, a detox program, like some sort of a rehabilitation program. And lots of people are looking for him. He's hiding from people. He doesn't want to be found. Uh, the people who live in the house are kind of humoring him because it's his house. You know, at some point, some of them ask him for money. And he spends most of the movie just not talking, not really even communicating with anyone. There's a great scene where a salesman comes to the door and he invites the salesman comes in with him and gives him a whole sales pitch. And Michael Pitt says nothing. <laughs> you know, he's just he's just a clean slate. There's nothing going on with him. And he's like he's literally mumbling throughout most of the movie. And at one point in the movie, there's a shot through a window where you see him in a room with a couple of guitars and drums. And he starts picking up instruments and playing them. And he gets frustrated or he gets he, he, he doesn't want anything. They'll put it down. They'll go to another instrument. But the sound design keeps playing what he had been playing on the previous instrument. So as he's frustrated moving around amongst these different instruments, it, it creates a song, and the camera pulls back, and you don't really see a lot of them. It could be just it's just somebody moving around in a house. Uh, so that's the first instance where you hear him as a musician. But the instance that I'm thinking of is later in the movie, um, and it's after uh, it's one of these weird overlapping scenes where you see a scene from the perspective of the people who live in the house with him, and one of them comes in and starts bugging him about something. It's actually Lucas Haas. He goes in there, and he's wanting to give him a demo tape. He's wanting him to listen to it. And another character comes in and says to Lucas Haas, you know what, quit bugging him, leave him alone, come on. And they walk out of the room. And as they walk out of the room, the camera follows them, and and they go upstairs. And as they go upstairs and continue the scene, somebody downstairs puts on another record. You know, you can hear music playing in the background. And they go about their scene. And then we cut back to that same scene again from a different perspective of Lucas Haas bugging Michael Pitt with the, the demo tape and someone comes in and says to Lucas Haas quit bugging him leads him out of the room but the camera stays in the room with Michael Pitt and he's sitting there with a guitar and after just sort of like like hunched over throughout most of the movie he seems like he's going to pass out he starts picking out a little song on the guitar and it gets increasingly sort of intense and louder and you realize someone didn't put on a record what you heard in the other scene is his music is him playing a song. And it's a song that was written by and played by Michael Pitt called Death to Birth. 
which it just really captures that sort of Nirvana sound. Uh, and I really appreciate, you know, you see him playing it. You see him snapping out of this sort of stupor that he's been in through most of the movie. Uh, he gets just really, uh, you know, there's this sense of catharsis or just coming alive, this sort of spark that comes out of him while he plays this song. Um, and it's a great part of the movie. So there's my number two is Michael Pitt on guitar in the last days. And I'm guessing neither of you have seen this, right? I haven't seen it, but I've written a shot-for-shot remake of Gus Van Sant's Psycho. <laughs> okay. You should see about getting that produced. Nobody's done that. Is Michael Pitt related to Brad? No, not that I know of. Actually, no, I'm, I'm almost certain he's not. Did uh, Dingus fall asleep? Well, did Michael Pitt, the actor, write that song? Yes. Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't uh, know that. No, I, I haven't seen the film, but... Um, but that's a that's sort of a double whammy you just pulled on us. He's not only playing it, he's playing a song he wrote. And it's kind of cheating because he sings, but he's clearly playing the guitar. And so much of how the song comes alive is what starts out as this little, it's almost like a ballad or something, becomes this serious grunge rock. I mean, I don't know any guitar terminology, but he's doing that thing where you're, your hand is just like banging really hard on the guitar strings. I don't, I'm sure there's a word for it. Uh, but... But he he's really into, like, this... Like, like, he's not just picking out some fake song. He's really, like, just banging this out of this guitar. I mean, there's just a lot of emotion in that sequence, and uh, he does a great job with it. So, I think the I think that's called using overdrive. <laughs> he, he tilts it up in star power. That's right. He calls it in star power. <laughs> right, right. Um, what's what interesting from what, from what you just said is that uh, Samuel Jackson, when he's doing the thing I said earlier, he really... His voice is not... He's not a very good singer. Uh, <laughs> it's a little painful, but but there's so much emotion in his voice. Yeah. You're fine with it, especially given what he's doing with the guitar. Yeah. And I know Michael Pitt can sing, um, but I don't know if he chooses to as far as... Because I haven't seen the... the How do you know Michael Pitt can sing? I have no idea. If he, I mean, he does a great... It's it's a it's a grunge kind of song like it doesn't require any like high C's or whatever. But how do you know he can sing? Because he was in Hedwig and he sings in. Oh, good lord! Right, that's a musical. I keep forgetting. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Um, you got me there. I guess. That's probably how he what? got that part. And also, he sings a lot in Funny Games, doesn't he? <laughs> the musical numbers in Funny Games, of course. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Kelly Wand, you saw the Funny Games remake, right? Chunks of it. <laughs> Well, he's the he's the lead psycho, Michael Pitt, in the Funny Games remake. Uh, so, uh, not the shrimpy one. Not the shrimpy one. Uh, the handsome. He's also a psycho killer, along with uh, uh, oh rats. What's the half Nelson guy? Ryan, not Fleck. Ryan Gosling. Gosling. Good lord. He's the, he's a psycho killer with Ryan Gosling in a Sandra Bullock thriller called Mister Kissing. No, I don't know what it's called. I forget. It's been in my Netflix queue forever simply because Ryan Gosling and Michael Pitt are in it. Does Dan Cook die in it? We can only hope. (laughs) Those are the only movies I see. All right, Kelly Wan, what is your number one actor playing a musical instrument? You promised this was a good one. We're going to hold you to it. What is it? Did you guys see uh, The 5,000 Fingers fingers of Dr. T, the Dr. Seuss movie? Afraid not. What is that? Mr. Oh. T. Oh. Fuck Philistines. Um, <laughs> What's a Philistine? Uh, it's one to read only minor Dickenses. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but anyway, uh, 
It was a 1953 musical that Dr. Seuss wrote. Um, and it's about a, uh, a little boy who has a dream about he hates his piano teacher, so he dreams that the guy's hypnotized his mom and is holding him hostage at this institute where he's going to kidnap all these other kids and make them play this giant piano that has 5,000 keys. So they make like an atomic noisemaker, him and this plumber. Hello? Hey, Spring. <sighs> That's my number one. Say it again. What's the full name of it? Tommy Reddick in The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Dingus, do you know that movie? I don't, but I'm glad the cat is in now. <laughs> I want Dingus to watch it with his kids and review it. Uh, you keep saying I'm Dr. Gonna... Soy, so are you, are you making a joke about Dr. Seuss? Because I, I don't know what you're talking about at all. And it, and you promised us a good one, and we, neither of us knows what you're talking about, Kelly Wand. Is it I a specific moment, or is it... Yeah, we First are off, it's his, his name is pronounced Soyce. He's the one who said that. He says oh. it rhymes with voice. So you're the one mispronouncing his name, and so is everybody else. Oh! How's that feel? <laughs> hey, you, feel you got egg on your face, don't you? I got green egg on my face. Right. Just call him Ted Geisel, because that's easier to say. I prefer Theodore. I do, too. Anyway, he wrote it. But he didn't like the movie, and he disowned it, and he called it the debaculous fiasco. And wow, that's harsh. It's bad for you didn't like it. But All it's right. a good movie. You should see it really baked. Or on acid with your wives and kids. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was a huge flop because it freaked out the squares, and the kids were crying. Well, you've upset my cat, out. too. So, so let's see. Tommy Reddig... In the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T. Yeah. So it's a, the a musical, but, yeah. but is it a horror film? I, I no, it's a kids movie. movie. It's a, kids it's a movie. musical. It's kind of movie they don't make anymore, and it's got it's super expensive and it's this huge set. It's like and what's, what's the musical instrument? The mega piano with five thousand keys. Yeah, five thousand keys. But he makes it. But he sabotaged it to mess with the uh, Doctor Chewilliker's head. So they make this atomic noisemaker by putting stuff from their pockets in it, and then it explodes and blows up the piano, and everyone dies. And then it gets them out of the dream. Wow, okay. Then the plumber notices his mom, and they go on a date, and then he doesn't have to play piano anymore. So there's like a little lesson in it for kids, which is that your mom and the plumber, <laughs> so it's all wholesome. Dingus, do you believe a word that Kelly Wand is saying? I'm not sure I do. He doesn't even believe me on Dr. Soyce. He thinks I'm... Uh... <laughs> I don't think I believe you on that either, Kelly Wand. Look at not that I don't believe you. It's just that I, I have a tendency to believe that you are going to be right and that all of a sudden I think, all this time, have I been saying Dr. Seuss? It, but yeah, I, can't I have admit. too. There's no, no. somebody else he's talking about. There's there's a Dr. Soyce who made soy sauce or something. I don't know what he's talking about. So I, I have a tendency to believe Kelly Wand has to be right about this. All right. I've heard about the 5,000 cabinets of Dr. Kiligari, but I've never heard of this. I'll loan it to you. I have it on DVD. I'll loan it to you. Or I'll give it away in a contest to a lucky listener. Oh, I hope I win. <laughs> I hope we have a listener. <laughs> All right, good. Well, Dingus, let's go to your number one, because I'm pretty sure you're stealing my number one, because you're a jerk. Well, uh, how do you yeah, handle this? 
Just you're first. I mean, you're unless you want me to go first. Do you want to cede your uh, your uh, position in the in the uh, process here to me? Do you want me to go before you? No, no, I want to go first. I'm just curious as to whether we have the same moment, which is the most exciting well, of thing course. about this. Well, right, I, mean, so, well, I mean, yeah, it's got to it's got to be that one. Well, I mean, it, it leads be... up to. Uh, they all lead up to. Well, go ahead. I don't know. Maybe we have a different movie. Maybe you picked uh, Emily and Lucy or whatever that Emily Watson on the cello thing is. Ooh, I wanted to find that. That's Rachel. <laughs> Rachel who? Rachel Griffiths. Rachel Griffiths. Yeah, I was going to choose that. Oh, maybe like you that. did. Sure. I don't know. Maybe I did, or maybe I chose one of my runners, runners up. How about that? <laughs> you stole mine. I know you did. A Dr. Soy's collaborator named Alexander Liang wrote, You're wrong as the deuce, and you shouldn't rejoice if you're calling him Seuss. He pronounces it Soy's. So that's the proof. All right. Good research. Well done. No one would have written a poem about it if it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My number one. Uh, uh, here's the quote from the actual moment. How about that? Uh, come on, I need some music, man. Uh, okay, that's got to be his Brando, based on how bad his uh, <laughs> Samuel Jackson was. Um, ergo, Superman 2. Very good, I think, I think we have different moments from the movie, so technically. Yeah, I think we do, too. All right. The Nutty Professor? <laughs> uh, it's... Uh, the other, my my favorite line from this scene is "Oh no, an elbow," and this is one of my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Oh, you know what? Maybe I do want to pick that scene then. <laughs> this is one of my favorite movie uh, moments from the movie that whole year. Okay, and the movie we're talking about is a 2007 movie called "The Visitor," um, which I assume is your number one, Tom. Oh yeah. Right. You know that's the thing. As soon as I picked the category, I'm like, oh, I think this is going to steal "The Visitor." How am I going to work my way? Should I put it as my number three so that I get to say it first? Uh, so, yeah. No, of course that's mine. So go ahead. Go ahead. Explain what this movie is, Dingus. <laughs> I'm not going to. Uh, what, what, I, what I'm going to do is just talk about my moment and let you do that. Uh, because what happened to me is what happened to you last week. And I didn't realize this until well after uh, sort of watching it again and realizing that is that um, uh, the uh, playing of the instrument my favorite moment in this movie of him playing the instrument doesn't involve the instrument, but it involves him playing it. And it's when he goes, it's, it's uh, this, this uh, college professor who has already failed at an instrument early in the film um, <laughs> because he doesn't really know who he is yet. And when he begins to understand who he is, partly through uh, learning the instrument, but not just that. It's not this cliched, I've learned an instrument and now I can be free. It's just... Parting to starting to be a person and being able to express himself is uh, goes hand in hand with learning this instrument, learning to play the drums, and learning to play the drums with this this man Tariq. And um, I'll let you explain a little bit more of this, but I just want to get to my scene in particular. He he's he's been uh, learning. Uh, to play the drums with Tariq, who is his new friend, and he's. Uh, He's practicing it, and he's really working hard at it. And Tariq has been taken to... Uh, we've talked about The Visitor before. I've talked about it before. I've used it in my 3 by 3s before. He's in uh, an immigration center. He's about to be deported, or we don't know what his fate is going to be, but he's in an immigration center. And Walter goes to visit him there, and they're talking through glass. <laughs> and, um, and Tariq says, uh, you know, show me what you've been working on. 
<laughs> and Walter says, here? You know, he's sitting there in this sterile, white, plexiglass, this government bureaucracy room. And he's here. And Trey says, come on, man, I need some music. And so Walter starts to play the drums on the counter there. And, and Tariq. Is Tariq starts him by playing the drums against his chest, or just by doing percussion against his chest. And then Walter starts playing. He puts the phone down onto the counter so that you hear you hear it very loudly. And then he just starts showing him what he's been working on. And it's this beautiful moment of this man expressing himself and two characters connecting. Um, where uh, where in, and as you did last week with with uh, reflections, it doesn't even actually involve the instrument. It involves just playing on a counter. So I sort of cheat a little bit. That's a lovely cheat. It's a very nice cheat, Dingus. Uh, so for me, what I thought you would have gone with, it seems like the, the no-brainer, but I really like your your, your jujitsu there, uh, is the, the final shot of him on the drums in the subway. Uh, after everything that's gone down has gone down, he's lost Tariq, but he has discovered something about himself. And you see that expressed so powerfully in the way Richard Jenkins, who is not a drummer, who actually learned to play the drums as they were shooting the movie. You know, he didn't, like, study it super hard. He acknowledged that he wasn't going to look good doing it at first, and he got better over the course of time. But this comes to fruition at the end, where you have Richard Jenkins in the subway just channeling this just frustration and energy and uh, anger through the drums. Uh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, it's a pretty long shot. I think this, a train even passes in front of the camera. Uh, yeah. Uh, and he's he's playing the drums. I mean, it, it reminds me, it's like Michael Pitt on the guitar, where you see this burst of emotion from a character who's not been emotional so far. Um, and actually, that's not entirely true, because there have been, there has been at least one, a couple of very powerful emotional moments with Richard Jenkins. But you finally see it expressed through these drums in the last shot of The Visitor. Uh, and to me, uh, I love a movie that has a clear, concise character arc. And the character arc in The Visitor is Richard Jenkins basically rejecting the piano uh, <laughs> because he feels like he's too old and he feels like the teacher's talking down to him and it's beyond him. Uh, it's, it, it, the movie starts with him giving up and basically firing his piano teacher to the far end of this arc is him channeling this frustration he feels through the drums. Uh, and so I love that the drums serve as the culmination of this character's arc. Uh, in that final scene. All right. Yeah, absolutely. That, that that final image is just one of those great final images. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, Kelly Wan, put that on your list. The Visitor. Uh, the Visitor. Don't see. There's, I think, a horror movie from the 80s called The Visitor. Don't see that one. Well, you can if you want. But uh, this Is this one, one of your French movies? It's not French. It's the guy who did The Station Agent. He's an actor-turned-director named Tom McCarthy. He also oh, wrote... Yes. He wrote Up. He, he uh, was responsible for the kernel of the story that Pixar used for Up. Um, and The Visitor was his last movie. So The, the, the Visitor, too, it's just, I, I mean, all of us have seen Richard Jenkins. I mean, the guy is just, he, he's ubiquitous. He's playing character parts right and left. He's all over the place. And it's just so nice to see a guy like that, to just see a movie tap into his abilities as an actor and to really honor that. I mean, he's is so good. the one he was nominated for? Was he? Yeah, Dingus, yes. was he? Not? Oh, awesome. Good. Yeah. And he won, right? Yeah? Yay. No. 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 Adrian Brody went up and went, if you Google Richard Jenkins, you'll find he's been in a million movies. And I was like, what? That's how you get wrote that speech. You Google them. 
<laughs> Thanks, Adrian Brody. <laughs> Richard, they cut director Jenkinsville. Oh, God. <laughs> Wait, so, so did Adrian Brody win, or was he... Oh, he was nominated. He was, doing he was up on the stage doing a thing. It's like actors introducing other actors. Kind of what you but, he, but, he, but what's interesting is he was introducing him because he won the year before, right? No. He was introducing yeah. him as a nominee, like, this is why he should win. You guys yeah. love the Academy Awards. You love that stuff. Well, well the, uh, the, the only reason Adrian Brody is up there is because of playing an instrument in a movie. Which, that was one, too, but I, I didn't find it. Does, in the pian, pian, pianist, uh, does, does Adrian, do they fake his piano playing? Does the scene where he plays for the Nazi officer, is that really Adrian Brody? Because that's one I thought of, but I, I, didn't get, I didn't find that scene. I didn't look at it either. I don't, okay. I don't see movies with penis in the title. <laughs> I only see movies. <laughs> That's what I meant. Uh, all right, other runners up then. I like the part where uh, in Amadeus when Tom Hulse is rewriting Salieri's piece, like welcoming him. Like he writes this little, hey, I could be friends with you. And then Tom Hulse goes, no, this sucks. Here, let me make it good. But now, isn't that a character playing an uh, instrument and not an actor? Like I, I mentioned before, I don't think they managed to really give you the sense that Tom Hulse knew how to play the piano. Yeah, one too. part, it looked like it was him, because he was doing some kind of easy. I think he was doing chopsticks or something. Okay. Also, Robert Loggia and Tom Hanks and Big. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I heard they, uh, that took a long time to uh, CG. <laughs> Uh, one yeah, that I do you have that thing in your home, by the way. I keep it in the garage, but sure, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, one that I looked up and I, I really wanted to use, but watching it, it's so clear that he's not playing the guitar, which is a shame. Uh, there's a movie called Happiness, uh, and Jared Harris, who is Richard Harris's son, I believe, uh, plays a real scummy uh, Russian fellow who Jane Addams uh, runs into, and she ends up taking him home, and he's, he's real forward with her. Uh, I, I watched this scene again, and, oh, Jane Addams is so good. Gosh, why doesn't she get more work? Uh, so she takes him home, and he's just so forward with her, and she's so nervous. And at one point, uh, they're in the living room, and she rests her hand on a guitar, and he's like, oh, you're a musician. And she realizes she's touching it. She's like, oh, no, I just I write some songs. And and he's putting, he's doing the full court press trying to seduce her. And he's like, well, play me one of your love songs. And she's like, no, I couldn't. So he picks up the guitar and he plays You Light Up My Life. <laughs> he sings oh, it. Oh, yeah. And yeah. she is so completely won over. And there's a long shot of him playing. And then a long shot as the camera sort of panning to the side of her, this adoration on her face. And then a quick cut to them having sex. <laughs> but he plays it really retardedly, too. Well, you know, he, it, I don't think it's his voice. And I don't think he's on the guitar either because the way that it's framed you can't see his fingers on the fret so I didn't use that but it sounds so it's so ridiculous I mean that song is so absurd anyway but the way yeah he, he sings it so completely earnestly uh, and he's this slimy Russian guy uh, who ends up stealing her stuff by the way uh, but I love that scene because uh, it's just like how every loser dude can seduce chicks by playing songs on the guitar I mean it's just an instance of that kind of thing uh, yeah. <laughs> Casey Affleck didn't need to do it, though. He had another in. Uh, uh, His fists. Other runners-up. Anyone? Dingus? I've got, I've got three runners-up. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite one, which will make both of you groan, is uh, 
the uh, end of Juno when uh, Michael Sarah and Ellen Page are playing um, anyone else but you on guitar together. That's that's really that's really quaint, Dingus. Yes, yeah. <laughs> isn't that lovely? Um, then I also went back and looked at. <laughs> I really love the, the fact of the piano in Blade Runner, although I don't think they really play it. I mean, there's <laughs> there's sort of like tinkering around with the keys, and Sean Sean Young sort of plays something, and then but the the soundtrack sort of goes over what she's playing, and he says, "I, I heard music," but I, I had this memory of of. Uh, of him, of Harrison Ford actually playing the piano, and that doesn't really happen. He just sort of hits a couple of keys. Right. Um, and then the other one is is totally out of bounds um, because it's 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 a musician acting as an actor, uh, acting as himself, and it's it's I I <laughs> I just love um, the moment where Ray Charles in Blues Brothers, uh, <laughs> where he where he shows them how uh, the action on the the keyboard that they want to buy. That's good. All right. Does Belushi breaking the guitar in Animal House count as playing it? <laughs> ah, that's one way to think of it. Yeah. You could game that. Do you have any yeah. uh, any runners up, Mr. Wand? Well, that was one of them. All right. And no. Uh, they're not famous actors, but there's a great moment in Rocket Science where there's people playing violent films on the cello. <laughs> nice. And the cello does figure prominently into the movie later on, but... Uh, I, I like that moment, but I don't. I don't recall who any of the actors. Also, were. the aliens in Close Encounters. Ah, very good, Kelly Wand. Very good. Mm. But not the human. Yeah. He looks like a real dude. The aliens didn't look real though. Like Kelly Wand, what is our three by three next week? What do you got for us? Is it one of your awesome ones, or is it a bad one? We don't even know that the aliens played it with their fingers. Oh, uh, this one's really great. Uh it's the last subjective one on my list ever. This is the last one where it's like about us. These are subjective. Uh, okay, but let's hear let's hear what you got. What do you mean no, subjective? No, 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 no. Okay. Well, compared to everything else I have, this is the mm-hmm. last one where it's kind of about our lives, which is endlessly fascinating. <laughs> is it three movies you saw this week? Because that's one that I've wanted to do. <laughs> uh, three movies. Everyone loves but you. That's it's really your topic. That's your that's your topic. Three movies. You everyone loves. All right, all right, all right. Have we well, done that? I, no, no, no. You you no, you're locked in. You're locked in. Once you say it, now we're allowed to grief you about it. Uh, Are you griefing me? Oh, you bet. You bet. Three so, movies. So everyone, movie. everyone loves but you. Yeah. But you, Kelly you. Wand. You. No. You. You. The listener. You Dingus. <laughs> Me, Kelly Wan. Haven't People we done something stop. like this before? I'm I'm pretty sure one of you guys has done something like this. No? Is this the yeah, first I, I had no, one, we did. like three movies you would not take to a desert island. Ah <laughs> <laughs> right. So three movies everyone loves but you. That's that will be our three by three for, for next week. Uh, the I, last Yeah. Don't say that because you don't know. You never know. You could you could come I'll up never with... do another one that broad. I don't believe you. I do not believe you say that, but I'll I'm gonna do... call I'm gonna call you out, Kelly Wand. I believe you might. No. <laughs> I'll give you a dollar and everyone who listens a dollar. So like three dollars total. <laughs> <laughs> I do another one. It's All right. A... All right, so tune in next week for three movies everyone loves but us. Uh also, we will be seeing 
Is it just stone? Is it the stone? I'm so woefully uninformed about this. It's John Curran's... John Curran directed it. It's the guy who wrote Killer Inside Me. It's a movie called Stone. I think it opens fairly wide next week. We found out it has Edward Norton, Robert De Niro, and... Is Miller or something? Mila Jovovich, good lord! Yeah. Oh, you know what? So Mila Jovovich, it, yeah. If you've seen the claim, you know that Mila Jovovich can act. She can be awesome. So uh, there you go. Yeah. She just chooses not to be. Resident Except Evil. Resident Evil 3D Afterlife, she's very good in that. Oh well. yeah, it's so good. Uh, so join us for that. We will be discussing Stone. We will be bringing you three movies everyone loves but us. Uh, and we will see you then. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Modernowski. Modern Mar- I can't. I can't read my writing. Is it Modernowski? Did I get that right? Uh, that's very close. It's Moroski, Christian Moroski. But you're going to get it. I know you will. That's very close. I'll practice that this week. Uh, and also uh, Kelly Wand. In addition to a killer, I also have a little Frenchman inside me. <laughs> For more information on serial killing in your community, visit my garage.